From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 32. We've got an awesome guest on the rehab side of things today that I think will really help not only athletes who want to be advocates for themselves as they go through the rehab process, but I think it will also be a collection of good lessons for people who may be looking to enter the physical therapy world or athletic training world, um, as well as strength conditioning coaches who can learn more about how to collaborate well with rehabilitation specialists. So this guy's awesome. He's been an amazing uh, resource to me. And I think you're going to appreciate why after this show is wrapped up. Today's episode is brought to you by Mark Pro. If you're a baseball pitcher, you know that keeping your arm healthy is essential. But with high training volumes on top of games, that's not always easy. Overuse is a significant problem for players at every level of baseball right now. Certainly, we see shoulder and elbow injuries as some of the most common overuse injuries in baseball. And as an example, at the professional level, a UCL injury can result in an average of 17.2 months out of competition. That's a huge deal also if you're a young player and you miss out on a lot of development. So really, at the end of the day, there are three ways that we can combat overuse. First, you can reduce the workload, and certainly there's been a lot of research out there on pitch counts. Second, and this is the theme of these podcasts, is that you can build a significant level of strength and fitness to repair yourself. However, a third key approach that's often overlooked is that you can work to improve your recovery so that you can safely display your fitness day in and day out. And that's really where the Mark Pro is an effective tool. Some athletes will even use it to warm up their arms before they throw as well. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge EMS device that uses patented technology to create non-fatiguing muscle activation, and this is what separates it from other recovery tools. Muscle activation with Mark Pro facilitates each stage of the body's natural recovery process, similar to active recovery, but without the extra muscular effort and fatigue. Athletes can use it for as long as they need to ensure a more full and quick recovery in between training or games. With its portability and ease of use, players can use Mark Pro while traveling between games or while relaxing at home. We have players that use it all the time on team flights to bounce back while they're just chilling on that flight. Um, we have plenty of pro guys that use this. In fact, every ML team and over 200 pro pitchers are regularly using Mark Pro. Um, put it to the test for yourself now with their new Try Before You Buy program. And you can use the promo code Cressy at checkout for 10% off at markpro.com. Again, that's Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for 10% off at markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com. Today's guest is a board-certified physical therapist who graduated from Boston University's physical therapy program in 2001. We've been fortunate to collaborate with him extensively in athlete rehabilitation at our Massachusetts facility with a specific focus in the baseball demographic. He was a co-creator of our Elite Baseball Mentorships offering, which have been put out there since 2012. He's also been a guest presenter for multiple MLB organizations on the staff education side of things. He's a certified strength conditioning specialist, functional moon screen analyst, and Graston technique provider. And he's trained extensively and taught under Washington University of St. Louis and Shirley Sarman's diagnosis and treatment of movement impairment syndromes model. We're beyond excited to announce him as the newest addition to the CSP Florida team, as he'll be joining the team in Palm Beach Gardens when we open our new facility as the on-site physical therapist starting on November 1. Please welcome to the show, Eric Schoenberg. Welcome to the show, Eric. 
Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for this um, for, for two reasons. First off, I feel like this is when like somebody has a buddy who's been playing like bars in Nashville and they know that they're like a, a country music superstar in the making and they, you know, they finally get on that big stage and open for like, for somebody like that. So, um, you have been like a secret weapon for CSP mass for an extended period of time. Um, you've handled some really tough cases and it's been, been cool, not just collaborating you, with you, but, but also learning from you, um, in the process. So I'm, I'm incredibly fired up to announce that you are going to be the physical therapist at the new CSP Florida facility. So the, the cat is officially out of the bag. It, it is. We can't hide it anymore. So maybe this will be my, uh, my official coming out party here. So this is a big deal. So, um, you know, definitely having a, a good PT on staff was something we really wanted. And, you know, more importantly, someone who, who's going to mesh really well and, you know, fall in line with like the synergy that we really try to uh, achieve at the facility. So we're, we're pumped about that. And, you know, certainly we'll have your contact info and everything as we, we get going on this. But, you know, what I, what I think that, that actually leads to as a good first question is I, I want to talk about how you've evolved as a physical therapist. Cause I know like what I was when I, you know, left grad school in, in 2005 and decided to take on the world. I thought I was ready for everything. And the, you know, the 15 years since then has been, you know, a dramatic shift in the way I look at things from assessment, programming, coaching. What are the biggest changes that you've gone through as a physical therapist since you finished PT school? And, you know, what were the big aha moments along the way to make you the progressive PT that you are today? Gosh, yeah. I mean, I think everything has changed. Um, you know, I think at the time, as you mentioned, you think you have it figured out and then, um, you know, you learn every year, the more you learn, the less, you know, and, um, I think that's been a big piece of it. So, you know, a couple of things, I guess when I was back in school that I didn't realize were as impactful, um, until I got enough experience to realize how profound they were. One is, uh, we were instructed that PT is as much of an art as it is a science. And, uh, that didn't make any sense to me because we were taking all these science classes and, you know, maybe a token psychology class or two, but, once you start dealing with human beings and working, you know, in the trenches with human beings, you realize that, you know, you got to get you got to get buy in uh, earning the trust of the people that you're working with, especially people that are getting paid to, you know, to do the things that they're currently unable to do. That's a that's a huge, huge piece of it. So, you know, the art of, of physical therapy is something that I feel is uh, can be missing depending on the practice model and depending on you know, the type of physical therapist that people become. I think we learn all the science and we learn all the evaluation and exercise tools. Uh, but learning how to connect with, with human beings, I think is the thing that's, that's a big, a big piece that, uh, I realize now is, is probably, you know, perhaps one of the things that sets me apart from other people. So I think that's a big one. Um, and then the other one, frankly, was that we had a professor who said, you know, don't, don't be mediocre. Like don't allow yourself to ever be mediocre. And, and I think what I've learned is this field is like any other where you can, you can get through it. Like you can get people better, mostly accidentally when you're first starting and you think that you're great at what you're doing. But then you realize that there's, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the cases that, you know, you're not doing as good a job on as you possibly can be. And it pushes you to say, how can I bat a thousand? Like, how can I get everybody better? And it's not always possible, but that line of like, don't be mediocre always kind of stood out to me. And I realized that as I work with higher level athletes and pro athletes and things like that, is that they will not allow themselves to take a day off and to be mediocre ever. Um, so for us, it's, it's just, we, we should hold ourselves to that same standard because they deserve, if they're going to give us their trust, uh, with their careers, they deserve to make sure that we're, we're not, uh, you know, taking a day off either. And I think those are, 
sort of the two kind of lessons that jumped out at me the most. And then as far as the aha moment, um, you know, frankly, it's going to sound like a, you know, an ad for CSP, but mm-hmm. it, it was probably the time when I walked into your door for the first time, uh, and realized that, you know, strength and conditioning was an area that I, I was, I was, you know, a, a certified strength and conditioning specialist at that time, not really working in the field. And it, and I grew up in gyms. My family owned a gym. I worked in my, my college gym, but I never realized what strength and conditioning was. And, it was such an opportunity for growth and learning that I couldn't stop going once I started and volunteering my time and just being around the environment uh, was huge for me. So realizing that I had so much to learn from people outside of my field, um, that that was a huge, huge moment for, for me uh, professionally, for sure. Uh, and getting a chance to learn, you know, from the original staff at CSP and then, and then the people that came after that was a, was a huge piece as well. And likewise, you know, as a a turning point, get interact with you. And I think, you know, that, that actually even leads into the next question where, you know, where you helped me a ton, you know, I I was exposed to Shirley Simon's work probably in 2004 to 2006, kind of like during my grad school career. And then a little bit further after, and certainly the strength edition community has maybe been drawn to, to Sarman's work in the last decade or so, but you were a much earlier adopter. So I, I'm curious, what led to you to study kind of the, the Wash U, um, you know, faculty and, you know, you know, what led you down that path and, and speak a little bit to your experience in that regard at the same time? Sure. Yeah. My, uh, you know, my two business partners, uh, saw Shirley speak at, uh, what's called the combined sections meeting, which is like the annual physical therapy conference. Um, and we're intrigued by her message. She has this sort of, this, this sort of stock, uh, one hour presentation that she gives now all over the world. But at the time she gave it then, which is basically saying, you know, look at, look at the person's movement. Don't look at what their diagnosis is. Try to understand, you know, the reasons why somebody's having their pain as opposed to just the fact that they have already been diagnosed with pain. You know, treat the cause, not the symptoms, like all this stuff that's so commonplace now. That like everybody now would be like, gosh, that sounds pretty, pretty obvious. But back then it was pretty profound. So they went out and took a course in St. Louis on, on the Wash U campus and came back and were basically like, damn, like we, we've been doing this wrong. You know, we've been doing this wrong for like eight years. Uh, <laughs> so they came back and, and they taught me some stuff and, and without even taking the course or just learning like the stuff that they kind of in-service me on. I was like, damn, like I'm, I'm teaching this stuff wrong. You know what I mean? And, and you make some small changes and that's what this stuff turns into. And you realize like what a, what an impact you can have just by putting somebody in the right position, putting their joints in a position where they can function without, you know, getting, you know, symptoms of impingement or whatever it may be. We can talk more about that later. But, um, so then I started to go out there and after that, it was just, it was just game over for me. Like there's a lot of ways to learn. And the way I describe it is I felt like we had a lot of branches. Like what I mean by that is we had a lot of things that we could do, whether it was uh, therapeutic exercise or manual therapy or whatever it was, but we didn't have like sort of the trunk of the tree for all these branches to work off of. And this, we didn't have like an overriding philosophy. So my schooling was good. My con ed up until that point was pretty good, but we didn't have this like philosophy of how we would look at a patient. And now there are more of those things that are out there. Now there's SFMA and a lot of that stuff, which I believe is rooted in a lot of Sarman's teachings, not directly, but there's a lot of common commonalities to it. So I think that was the part that like sort of gave us probably the biggest change in, in certainly in my career. Um, and then from there, it was just building a relationship with them, realizing that, gosh, I got 
it's hard to have a mentor, like when you're eight or 10 years in working on an island, but, mm-hmm. uh, my goodness, like it, it gave us basically like a, a, another shot at like this in a way, like kind of, for me, it was like a postgraduate, like doctoral PhD, like informally, like, mm-hmm. uh, kind of learning through their system. And, and every time we went out there or I went out there, it was just like, you're learning, you're learning so much. And then I had an opportunity to start teaching it and, and lecturing on it. Um, and then, you know, the mastery of it comes when you're able to teach it and, and, and sort of get people to, you know, understand it a little bit better. So I, I think those are the, that's sort of how I came across it. And then in terms of how it impacts my career, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that I do every day. And, and what it allows you to do is it, it allows you to take complex, uh, concepts and make them very simple and then applying them to your patients and in, in whatever modality you're working, whether it's in the gym, whether it's on the field or with whatever type of athlete that you're working on, it applies like every time if you understand it enough and you understand, you know, the specifics of the sport and the unique demands of baseball. And in my example, uh, it, it works a lot in terms of giving you a, a good read on how to get a, a quick, a quick sense of what the athlete needs. Absolutely. And you know what I love is you, you, that, that tree, uh, trunk and branches analogy. Um, and I, I'm going to give you an example of what I think was the best way to summarize this. Um, so Connor Ryan is one of your biggest fans on the planet. One of our favorite people. Connor's a former CSP intern who's now a, a physical therapist for the Phoenix Coyotes. And Connor also did one of his clinical rotations with him. And yeah. I remember one day Connor was in the office and it was, you know, it was kind of partway through his experience with him. And, you know, one of the things you said was, Hey, Connor, you need to stop telling me what would Charlie Weingroff do or what would Bill Hartman do or what would, you know, other physical therapists, you need to tell me what Connor Ryan would do. Mm-hmm. And, and when I think of you saying that, I'm like, it's it, the, the goal is to, to get away from methods and get back to principles. And mm-hmm. I think that's what Sharm Sarman does is she gives you that, that tree trunk of principles that you can draw from that allows you to look at things, you know, in the big picture. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, that's a good reminder with Connor and mm-hmm. Connor was the most educated, uh, student and then young professional I probably ever come across. He got, I don't know how he did it. I think he, he just, his network was so crazy. He was able to get to every con ed course on the planet, but yeah, and it's until he was able to have enough confidence in what he knew himself and synthesizing all the information and being able to express his opinion. Cause that's what the, that's what the world needed. That's what the athletic world needed was, was his take. Cause I don't think anybody else had the ability to synthesize as much as what he had because he went to more con ed stuff than anybody that I'd ever met at the time. So that, that mixture of all of that, throwing it all in a bowl and then giving his interpretation of it was, it's pretty cool. So yeah. I'm glad he's doing so well. Shout out Connor. We love you, bud. You're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So one of the reasons I've always admired you, um, is, is I think there's a, there's a parallel. I always tell people with, with CSP, our goal was always to never make our, our training model, excuse me, our business model impact our training model. In other words, it wasn't like, Hey, we need to get everybody in and out in an hour. It was, Hey, we have a certain amount of things that we need to accomplish. If it mm-hmm. takes 75 minutes, great. If it takes 79 minutes, it's not a big deal. And as I've watched your, your therapy model, um, it's been very hands-on. It's been one-on-one. It's been, we're going to close the door and we're going to get, you know, 45 to 60 minutes of really high quality work in. And meanwhile, we look around the PT industry and, you know, maybe this is a gross generalization, but you see a lot of, ready to print rotator cuff programs. Um, yeah. you, you know, you see the post-op shoulder, you know, 
protocol. Um, you see a lack of attention to detail. You see one therapist seeing six patients and you know, don't get me wrong. We, we use semi-private training and I think there's absolutely a place for it. Mm. I'm not sure that in the initial like rehab scenarios, when people are trying to, you know, to change fundamentally aberrant patterns where we're, we're looking at like really fine Arthur kinematic control and things like that. I'm not sure that semi-private works in that realm. And I know a lot of that's dictated by insurance and yeah. all that dynamic. But I mean, I, I guess my question for you is how hard has it been to deviate from that model a logistically, you know, cause I'm sure you were thrown to those models when you're a new PT grad and, yeah. then, and then B financially, you leave a lot of money on the table when you can effectively see half as many patients every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, a really good question. And it's, it's one that we could probably do the whole podcast on, but um, you know, I think, I think there's a few things that jump out at me, you know, when you ask that question. Uh, the first one, I guess, is just remembering that we're in the service industry, right? Mm -hmm. So it's remembering why we got into this business in the first place. And it was not to, you know, slave over documentation or, or deal with insurance companies. And it certainly was not to, uh, you know, you don't get into this field at the end of the day to try to get rich quick. Like it's a, if anybody out there is thinking about doing that, it's a terrible idea because it's not going to work at least at the beginning. So, mm -hmm. It's just staying true to what it is, like your core values of why you got into the industry in the first place is a really, really big part of it. In terms of uh, the difficulty of it, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like when you're young uh, in the field, you learn like what you think the industry is on your clinical rotations and then in your first employers and jobs and things like that. And then back in that day, there wasn't really many people that are doing the the one-on-one -on -one kind of longer treatments, really get to know your patients. The standard was, as you described earlier, in addition to that, the standard was, you know, you'll come in and see a batch of patients on Monday and then see a completely different group of patients on Tuesday. There was no continuity in the way that, that physical therapy was structured. So you're essentially learning somebody's name and then trying to help them like in the same day. <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. sort of like you didn't do the evaluation and you're doing the treatment. Like it, it was a, it was a real mess. This approach is they like that they get to we get a chance to know them well, right? We know their families. We know what makes them tick. We know their why, you know, we know their, the things that make them tick. And, and at the end of the day, like they then trust you, right? And a hundred percent of our job is to gain trust from the people that we're working with at any level, whether it's a sixth grader or whether it's a professional baseball player. So the sooner you can do that, the better. And it's impossible to do that unless you spend time as opposed to spending time talking and, and shouting out instructions and things like that. So, I'd say it was the easiest transition, Eric, that we I, I ever had to make because I saw what I didn't like. And I got taught a lot of things that I was like, I don't want to do this this way. And my partners and I, when we opened our own practice, were basically like, let's do everything the opposite. You know, let's spend <laughs> let's spend tons of time with people. Uh, let's figure out how to create lifetime customers as opposed to like one offs. Because physical therapy is a is a field where you don't use it unless you get hurt. Right. Yeah. Unless you build a, a, a relationship with them where you establish this sort of family or friend type of relationship where they call you before they call their primary care doctor, where they call you for advice for their neighbor, their husband, their kid, their whatever. So it, it's it's a short term sacrifice financially for for a long term gain. Um, and once you establish that reputation, then your days of needing to market and spend money on that goes away. Your days in terms of opening up opportunities for yourself. Um, I would argue that if we didn't change our model and I didn't approach physical therapy in this way, that I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. So I would say that to that change point. in model is, 
uh, is a huge thing. And I think it's a lot more standard now. Um, uh, there's some restrictions, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of keeping the doors open. Um, but for people that are looking to open a private practice where they're going to accept insurance, where they dictate what you're worth, um, you have to find other revenue streams to be able to supplement your practice so that you can continue to not compromise your model. So that's the PT private practice like pitch, but, um, you know, the other alternatives are to not get dictated by insurance, um, and allow yourself to, to create the model that you want for the best interest of your, of your patient or client or whatever you want to call it. So absolutely. And you know, there, there are interesting parallels in, in, you know, collegiate and professional sports. If we really think about it, um, you know, if you just do the, the simple math on it, um, you know, if you've got, you know, 30 pitchers rehabbing in a major league organization at a given time. And that's not an outrageous number. Like we, we hear stories about organizations having 15 Tommy Johns alone. Um, you know, you throw in some, some ankles, some hips, some hamstrings, all this stuff. And, you know, you deal with, you know, three to four athletic trainers. That, that can be a very quick, uh, an aggressive patient load. Um, you know, obviously rehab coordinators and, and physical therapists as well. And one of the things I, I often talk to our athletes about, and it's, it's in no way, indicative of like a level of incompetence or anything like that at a, at a place where those, those folks may be working is if you think about it this way, if you're a professional baseball player and you need Tommy John, you know, if you're a big leaguer, there are really probably six or seven guys that do all of those surgeries nationwide. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. You can, you can count them on two hands for sure. Um, yep. but it's interesting from a rehab standpoint, almost invariably, we always just assume that the person down the street is going to be wildly qualified to handle that yeah. post-op scenario or, you know, even more importantly, avoiding that surgery in the first place. So, yeah. um, you know, we talk a lot about like, Hey, be an advocate for yourself, do your homework, figure out whether this person has experience with your condition, mm-hmm. um, and is really, really comfortable. Cause very rarely are like the most, you know, proficient rehab people for your specific needs going to be geographically convenient. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I blame myself and our industry and, and things like that for not, uh, being willing to put ourselves out there, market ourselves, niche, niche up ourselves. Like doctors, you know, there's an orthopedic surgeon, then there's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in sports, and then there's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in shoulder injuries, and then it's just baseball shoulder injuries or elbow injuries. You know what I mean? Yeah. They super specialize. And PTs are just like, yeah, we, we, we see everybody. Come one, come all. And it's okay to be a generalist for sure, yeah. but at the end of the day, it's about letting people know. And, you know, at least where we are in Massachusetts, there's just not a lot of people in it. And it's that, that, that managed, you know, TJ or something like that. And, you know, we'll see what it's like in Florida. But at the same time, it's just like, it's our job to let people know that we're experts. And it's our job to let people know that we've spent, you know, 10 years, 20 years working on hundreds and hundreds of patients. And just because somebody saw a professional athlete one time because they happened to be in the area or, they randomly caught, you know, a, a TJ rehab or something doesn't make them an expert, although they'll say, yeah, we can fix everything. And I think a, a, a great, a great sign of a good professional is to be able to say, listen, I, I can't fix you better than, than this person. And as a result, we'll refer out. And that's what doctors do all the time. They're like, Hey, listen, we caught you because you, you came to us, but listen, you got to go to this other doctor because he's the man when it comes to this or she's the woman when it comes to this. Mm-hmm. And as a result, like, then they, they, it, it's just about not having an ego, right? And just being able to check yourself out of the equation and say, what's best for the patient is for them to see somebody besides me in this particular case. And that'll come back to you tenfold. It's, you know, we worry about losing a patient, but what we're going to do is gain, gain trust and build a reputation. And that's far bigger than just one patient. So absolutely. And I want to return to the, the Sarman question or the Sarman topic from earlier. 
And, yeah. and let's, let's apply it to the baseball world. Um, sure. You know, and certainly this is something that we do all day, every day. We talk about it, uh, to be honest, we, every single day of the week. So let's mm-hmm. speak to the most common movement impairments that you see in, in baseball players. And, you know, obviously let's hone in on the upper extremity for the, the sake of, of brevity. So what do you got? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the big thing that we missed forever was looking at the role of the shoulder blade. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an overhead athlete and a throwing athlete because all of their symptoms were always at their shoulder joint, their glenohumeral joint, or at their elbow joint. So we would always think, well, the shoulder hurts, elbow hurts, so let's look at the shoulder, let's look at the elbow. But it turns out that the scapula was the missing link. And, and to going back to the question from earlier, is that was pretty impactful. So the, the concept of the scapula being downwardly rotated or in a depressed position is probably the most common finding for the shoulder blade that we would see in a baseball player. So the concept there is that their shoulder blades are down uh, in back because that's what they've been instructed to do with all of their exercises. Uh, puts them in a disadvantageous position when they lay their hand back to throw. Uh, and more importantly, or in addition, I should say, it, it negates their ability to get their arm out in front. So what that does when the scapula doesn't move freely is it, it puts the stress of creating velocity uh, into the shoulder joint or into the elbow joint. So it just passes the baton down and then the shoulder joints like, okay, I'm going to have to pick up this extra effort because my scapula didn't put me in a position to be, uh, to be successful. So as a result, uh, you know, that's where we always kind of start a lot of our assessments is looking at whether that scapula is in a sort of a malaligned position to start. And then once it starts to move, you know, does it get into this positions that it needs to get into, um, you know, that match up to what we need, whether we're hitting a baseball or whether we're going through a throwing motion or in the pitching delivery. So on the scapula, that's the biggest two that we see. Um, in the shoulder joint itself, you know, we see this concept of uh, anterior humeral glide, which is the humeral, the humeral head kind of pushing forward into the front of the shoulder, right? So that happens uh, in different cases. So from a pitching th- uh, throwing standpoint, that happens primarily when an arm is late getting, you know, getting to position when we're, when we're making our move to home plate. So that late arm, uh, results in this kind of, uh, kind of a driving force of your humeral head pushing towards the front of your shoulder socket. And that's, we call that kind of the no fly zone. Like nothing, nothing should be getting into that area. There's enough force into that area to begin with. As the humerus starts to move in the shoulder socket the wrong way, uh, it starts to take soft tissue with it. Uh, and, and repetitively over time, it starts to create what we call like a micro tear or micro trauma. So in and of itself, it doesn't show up when we're 15, 16 years old at times. Maybe it doesn't show up until we're in the minor leagues after we've been drafted, whatever the case may be. But the fault has been there for several years. It just hasn't gotten to the threshold of becoming symptomatic. So that's a very common thing that we see. So an athlete will say, I'm tight, or they'll get diagnosed with their standard biceps tendonitis take some rest and then it, you know, they return through a throwing program and the symptoms come back again because we didn't change the fact that they don't have good awareness and good control of their humeral head pushing to the front. So ultimately it ends in a, in a labral tear and surgery if it's not picked up. And, and then we look to perhaps say what went wrong with this coach or was this athlete getting used too much or whatever the case may be. But fundamentally they've been moving inefficiently from a young age. It just, it just caught up to them at a certain point. So Scapular downward rotation and depression um, are the top two there. And then that anterior glide of the humerus, I would say, is like right up there in terms of things that we see most frequently. And it leads to an interesting kind of side discussion is, you know, there'll be people on the Internet who, you know, scream from the highest rooftop that posture doesn't matter. And Mm. one of the things that 
you know, I think you've done an amazing job over the years is, is you, you test retest, right? So if yeah. you have someone who's living in scapular depression and they've got, you know, really bad, you know, upper trap pain or neck discomfort, something like that, you know, you, you basically guide them into upward rotation and, or, or in that, in that case, elevation, if it's a scapular yeah. depression person and, you know, in many cases their symptoms resolve. So, you know, sometimes improving posture can immediately reduce symptoms. So do you use that test retest on a, on an absolute, you know, everyday basis with folks? Yeah, all the time. And, and I, I think that it's easy to cherry pick and say one thing doesn't work. And there's always mm-hmm. going to be an example where it doesn't. You can have a guy with terrible resting posture that has a lightning quick arm that can get into positions that, you know, 0.1% of guys can get into. And they can say, look, here's this guy with his shirt off. He's got terrible posture been pitching for eight years in the big leagues with no arm pain. So yeah, there's a case where it works, right? But if you take the, the, the grand, the vast majority, uh, it absolutely plays a role. And, and that's the biggest concept of this like Sarman method or the, is, is the test retest. So basically it's like, Hey, they're sitting in a bad spot. When they move, they don't get into the right position. And now we're going to put them into the right position and their, their symptoms go away. Like if, if you want to get buy-in from an athlete is, you basically hardly have to touch them. And you can, you can get an athlete who says, hey, I've had pain when I reach my arm over my head for the last three months. And then you situate their shoulder in the right position, their scapula in the right position, and they sweep through full shoulder flexion without pain, without modalities, without soft tissue work, without stretching, without anything. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're going to listen to the next thing that you say if you took away their pain without hardly touching them. So um, so that's kind of a big, a big eye opener for me. And, and that's a lot of what we, you know, what, what you and I teach, you know, as we go along with this stuff. So, um, you know, I'd say, I'd say for sure, like that's something that we do every day. Um, the other thing that I'd like to add to this is that the athlete spends a lot more time just sitting and resting, uh, playing video games, traveling on the bus, on the plane, whatever it may be. Um, without really any regard for how they're doing that. So I'm not saying that we have to put everybody in this like perfect Forrest Gump military posture mm-hmm. and have everybody be perfect all the time. But an athlete wants to know where that competitive edge is, right? They want to know where that, where's that 1% where I can get a little bit better. Cause everybody's right. Everybody's doing strength conditioning. Everybody's getting soft tissue work. Now, these are things that were, were impactful 10 years ago that are currently no longer as impactful because everybody's caught on, right? Yeah. So now what are we doing? We're doing tech, we're doing vision, we're doing uh, virtual reality, we're doing all kinds of things, right? But we got this thing called posture that's just sitting there and everybody's got to deal with it and no one's paying any attention to it because we're just like, oh, it doesn't make that big of a deal. But it's it not, turns it's out- It's not sexy anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it turns out like 18 hours of the day, they're not, they're not doing anything athletic. So they're just sitting like monkeys and they're getting worse and they're losing their gains in the gym and everything that they're working hard to gain- they're losing. So it, it, it matters for sure. I, I think people should realize that. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I think is, you know, I, I, we joke that we, we started teaching our baseball mentorships in 2012. It was you and me and Matt Blake, Matt got yes. hired, hired away by the Indians and Christian filled in. He's now a Padre. So we're, we're, we only got two amigos now, but <laughs> so one of the things that we did selfishly was we started that let's be honest, because we wanted people we could refer to. Like that was a huge part of it. We'd have these guys that would come and have this synergistic experience between training, rehab, and then the actual skill development aspect of it on the pitching side with analysis and technology. 
And then, you know, they'd go back to San Diego or California or whatever, you know, anywhere it was. Yeah. And then we would have nobody that we could refer to. So we, we did it selfishly. But at the same time, one of the things I think we realized is in doing that was that the synergy that we had in that model um, was was something that really reaffirmed the tremendous interaction between strength and conditioning and rehab. You know, you, mm. and Charlie Weingroff's talking, you know, training equals rehab, rehab equals training. And, you know, yeah. the, the, the roles are 95% the same. It's just that 5% is the, the presence of symptoms. Where do you see the, the most mistakes emerging in that regard? Like what's the, yeah. what's the biggest mistake that that trainer slash, or I don't even say trainer, I want to say rehab specialist slash strength and conditioning professional interaction is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really, really important thing to talk about. And as you were describing that model of what we tried to create with the mentorships, I'm realizing as I'm, you know, a couple of weeks from getting in the car to drive down there, that that's literally what we're putting together under one roof, you know, in mm-hmm. Florida. So that's pretty exciting for me to hear you kind of explain it that way. But, um, you know, I, I think the biggest mistakes, I, I kind of thought a little bit about this question. And I, I think the biggest one is just not, first of all, it, it's, it's, I think the biggest one is ego, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's first and foremost, the biggest issue that's out there is, is understanding who are we doing this for, right? At the end of the day, you know, people call their, their, their athletes, my athletes and, and my this, and I did this for this guy. And he wouldn't, you know, it's like the athlete is the show, like the mm-hmm. athlete is the deal a hundred percent of the time. So whether it's, Hey, you know, go talk to Eric or go talk to Shane or go talk to, to somebody because they can they can help you out right now or, or or come stay with me for a little bit like it doesn't matter who gets the glory and I think that's that's the part that I think is the biggest mistake is is being you know confident in yourself you know being secure in yourself being humble enough to realize that you you're going to learn from whoever you interact with if you give yourself an opportunity and an open mindedness to be able to learn so gosh like just look around and, and be willing to just say hey this person's got something to offer me. They might have something to offer the patient that I'm working with. So let's collaborate. And, you know, the fact that everything was working in silos for so long in professional sports, I think it's not happening as much anymore, thankfully. Right. But it's it's just this thought of like, why why isn't the skill coach sitting with the PT or the or the athletic trainer sitting with the strength coach and everybody coming up with a plan as much? Right. Or why are we still doing it in, in different rooms? Like it, it, that, that part never really resonated with me. Um, not working in affiliated ball. I understand that there's logistical reasons why that can't happen, but in terms of just like the, the general concept of it, like, I think that's a big thing. It's just not taking advantage of the people that are under your own roof, uh, and, and using that as a way to leverage, you know, success with the athlete. I think that's the biggest thing that jumps out at me. That's a great point. Um, and you know, you're, this is kind of jumping, you know, into a different section a little bit, but you're not just a physical therapist. You're also a baseball dad. You've coached. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious as to how, you know, I know that was a big deal for your, for your, uh, your kids to move down here as well. This is a, yeah. a, not just a different academic world, but a different baseball world. And mm-hmm. you know, you've got some guys with some very, you know, big aspirations and that side of things, but how, have, how have these perspectives changed how you manage athletes as a therapist, be it, mm. be it dad and coach as well? It feels like pressure, Eric, to yeah. be honest. And the reason is because I feel like if one of my kids gets a big injury, it's going to, it's going to hurt my credibility. So, <laughs> uh, so I worry about that. They, they have it hard. They have mm-hmm. it hard in that regard. They're going to do a lot of things right. And we're going to, we're going to apply a lot of things that I know and that you know and, mm-hmm. and, and help them to stay healthy. But outside of that, um, what it reminds me is two things. One is, is we have a huge opportunity to impact kids because they, they're, they're an open canvas. So we can get them moving correctly. So with the, Let's, let's get a little bit more like big picture, right? They're losing phys ed. Technology's taking over their life. They're becoming unathletic. 
they're all overweight. They're not eating right. So there's this, this whole like epidemiological issue with kids, right? So we have an, we have such an opportunity as PTs and strength coaches, uh, to be able to impact them so profoundly because if you ever wanted to get a, a client or a busy gym, go get, go get a bunch of kids who are sitting around dying to be active, but can't do it in phys ed. And you know, they didn't make their team or, or whatever it may be, or they're in their off season. It's like they're dying for it. So the concept of like a lifespan approach to, to development in terms of athletic ability and certainly from a movement perspective, that's what I see mm-hmm. is just a bunch of kids at, and, and I, I coach basketball and baseball. So it's sort of like these kids are just so much less athletic. So such an opportunity for us to be like kind of impactful for them. And, uh, in that regard. And, and then the other thing from just like a purely like coaching youth athletes situation and, and, and certainly even as a parent of a youth athlete is, um, the coaches at the end of the day, the lack of information that they have and their ability, let's be honest, they're just, they're just volunteers willing to donate their time to try to help these kids out. Right. So the fact that they don't know like how to keep an arm healthy or the fact that they don't know like how to prevent, you know, an injury or whatever, it's, it's not really their fault. So I kind of look inward on it and say, we can either complain about kids today or complain about the way kids are being managed or the way they're being coached. Or we can do something about it. And, you know, somebody like myself, I take it personally and say, listen, I have a responsibility with the knowledge that I have to be able to educate the people that I have a reach for. Right. So whether that's doing this podcast or, or whether it's going and, te- and talking to, you know, our little league coaches before the season starts or, or doing our mentorships or whatever level you want to talk about it, like we have this knowledge and I would encourage everybody to try to go out and and share the knowledge that we have because we think it's commonplace, but it just isn't. And some of the changes are so simple uh, that if we can just implement them and educate, like the coaches aren't trying to hurt the kids. They just want to, they don't know what to do. They don't even know what they're doing in some regards. They're just super kind people that are volunteering their time. So I I'm, I'm passionate about that, that world because not just because my kids are in it, but I feel like it's like a whole generation of kids that are getting the shaft because they don't, they don't have enough, people that are knowledgeable and our job is to educate those people. So it always comes down to keeping an open mind, not judging people. Right. And then just trying to do your part to educate and, and help people out. So you made a really good point in the sense that it's, it's really easy to complain about how bad things are. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you think about it, like everybody complains about how bad the coach is and, and then you go on Twitter and everybody's saying, Oh, you know, pitch counts are for sissies. I'm like, well, if pitch counts, you know, need to be going away, who's going to educate all these coaches yeah. to know what to opt for before a kid, you know, it's a, it's a necessary evil, you know, if yeah. or not even an evil, it's just a necessary thing. Um, yeah. So I think we have a lot of people that love to, you know, to, to complain, but not necessarily, you know, contribute to the body of knowledge or, or more importantly, contribute to actual, you know, positive change in the right direction. Yeah, it's a big job and it's easy to point out what's wrong, right? But the challenge is to like come up with a solution, to actually implement it and, and enact change. Like it's, it's a, it's a hard task, but uh, I think that's what happened not to jump off target, but that's, mm-hmm. that's what happens in the PT world, right? It's just this complacency and everybody, in in our profession, just just complains. They're just like, oh, we're we're getting screwed by the insurance companies, or we don't have enough time to spend with our patients, or going back to the question from earlier, it's like, do something about it. Like, yeah. go go create a model that's different, and guess what? That'll do for you, right? You will stand out as the only person in your area that's doing it that way. There's a lot of room at the bottom of the pyramid, right? There's a reason why a pyramid has a top, you know, a point at the top because there's not a lot of people up there that are willing to do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. So that's that's the thing. 
So. Absolutely. I'm curious. So you're a guy who is always on top. You're always staying up to date, reading new research and trying to get better in different ways. And I think that's why we've always hit it off. And mm. I, I know I'm the guy that wakes up in the middle of the night and at 3 a.m. I'm staring off into blackness, thinking about something new that I want to learn about or I feel like we could do differently or investigate better. Yeah. So everyone's got that topic that's currently on their mind, you know, a, prog- a professional growth area, if you will. What's yeah. on What's on your mind now? What are you reading up on the most to refine your skill set at the at the present time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I, honestly, I think the the thing that I'm reading currently the most is is actually just trying to dive as deep into, I guess, the mindset and the circumstances of of what a minor league or college or major league baseball player. Uh, kind of deals with every single day. So it's interesting, like I've come across these books um, that are primarily geared towards like, hey, this is, I think John Feinstein just wrote one recently or a little while ago. And it's basically like um, following a bunch of different minor leaguers and basically learning like the the ins and outs of, of what they're going through. And I, I, I say it that way and I speak to it because it's not this like grand answer of like, oh, I'm doing this like professional growth thing or whatever. It's like, I'm doing a lot of that as well. But I feel like one of the big things for me personally is, uh, and I hear this in every single podcast that you've done. I think there's been 30 of them. Mm-hmm. When you do your lightning round and you ask questions about what makes a good coach or what makes a good, uh, professional that you work with, it's, it's all about like they, they give a crap. Like they listen. They're, they're open. They're not trying to change me, you know, things like that. So it's just trying to get in the minds of as many people as I possibly can and, and really just listen to what's around me. I think there's opportunities to like listen to podcasts or do research or, or, or go to a con ed class. But sometimes it's just like open up your eyes and open up your ears to what is like right around you all the time and ask your people that you work with. Ask, I, I just, I talk to my the athletes that I work with all the time and I'm just like, how can I be better for you? What are the things that you like? What are the things that you don't like? So honestly, it's just, it's starting to just like buckle down and, and just be a little bit more uh, involved with what's around me to be able to really hone in on my craft and, and what I can bring, uh, to the table when I'm working with athletes. So that's kind of a different type of answer. I can't say I'm giving you like a book recommendation per se, I like but it's it. more, it's more just keep my eyes open to what's around me. So. All right. So, and let's, you know, this might sound somewhat hypocritical because you just talked about always, <laughs> always pointing out problems, but, um, what are the, what are the common mistakes you're seeing, you know, in the baseball world in particular, in the post-op period, both from athlete standpoints and from the physical therapists that are, that are working with them? Uh, yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think a big one is too many, too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, and a lack of communication. So I think we, we get so many guys that come in right now and they're like, listen, I've got, I've got at whatever level, right? I've got a family member. I've got a teammate. I've got a coach. I've got a skilled coach. I've got a doctor, a PT, my other PT, my strength coach, my other strength coach. Like I got 11 people giving me advice on what I need to do tomorrow. And it's like, shit, like if I'm the athlete, like how, how am I going to synthesize that information and know who to trust? Cause everybody's nice, right? Everybody that does what we do, they're nice human beings, right? But see, people have differing levels of competence. And, and at the end of the day, um, you need to have, you need to have somebody who's like the, the general, the main contractor, you know, that, that makes the decisions on, on things. So, um, whoever that may be, I'm not saying it has to be me every time, but I think that's the, that's the big one from like taking it from an athlete's standpoint is it's like, who do we actually listen to? Right. So, uh, and communication is, is, is paramount. Like it's like, okay, gaining the trust of your, your doctors that you're working with or your coaches or your agents or whoever you're working with to be able to say like, this person is equipped to make, you know, a good decision on this athlete's behalf. 
um, and has their best interest at hand and understands the scope of where this athlete stands. So I'll, I'll just give a quick example on this in terms of like what, what makes sense or where the mistakes are to answer your original question is like a lot of it depends on the unique situation of the athlete. So I don't want to return everybody back from Tommy John rehab at 11 months. Right. But if it's a, a professional athlete's last shot, right. To get picked up, to get a contract, to get out there and to be able to like, uh, show that they're healthy, right? Is it the right decision? No, it's not the right decision per se, but their unique circumstance might, might cause us to have to be on a faster course, right? Whereas if somebody else has like 16 months built in, whereas their, their 11 or 12 month mark is right in, let's say September or October, um, and their season, say the team isn't in playoff contention or whatever, do we have to rush them back for like one start or, do we say, or if it's a college kid, do we have to rush him back for one start? Or do we say, gosh, if you, if you don't rush back, you're buying yourself another four or five months. Uh, and then you're going to, you're going to almost assure that you're going to be at a much better chance of, of having success. So I think a lot of it isn't just the X's and O's of like the surgical protocol and following. Everyone's going to follow that stuff if they're good at what they do. But I think it's more just trying to take kind of a, a wider approach to be able to make a decision based on the unique, not just the needs of the athlete medically, but the needs of the athlete in terms of, you know, where they are in their career, their draft status, you know, whatever it may be, I think decisions need to be made. And the only way to get there is to be able to truly know your athlete and the goals of the athlete that you're working with, not just like this guy's an elbow. This is what we do with elbows and we'll get him back at X number of, of weeks. or we'll start throwing exactly at four months just because the calendar turned when the athlete hasn't been equipped to be able to do that. I mean, there's countless stories of, of things like that. So I think that's the biggest thing that I see missing uh, is, is a, a lack of individuality, perhaps with, with the medical side of things, the strength conditioning side of things, but also with just where it fits in their goals and in their life and things like that. So absolutely. And you know, we, so we do a, like a live, um, like tweet of basically our baseball mentorships we run them. So I'll always throw up random quotes from throughout. And we did one this June and I put out, we want, you said, we want to get to the point where we're educating our athletes so well that they can in turn help teach their teammates too. And this, this was on June 23rd and literally an immediate reply from Aaron Savali the day after his first major league win. He said, that's the best way to do it. Don't always just do ask why and understand why it's, how it's going to help you. You'll put that much more effort into it, knowing how it's going to benefit you. So you and Aaron worked together after his lat injury last year and obviously went out and had a, had a great first year in the big league. So he was mm -hmm. obviously a big believer in, in, in not just the, the exercise you did or the approach you took, but certainly the educational aspect of it. He came back as a much more informed consumer about why he was hurt, not just the, the what. And he's been a raving fan of yours. I'm curious as to, are there, are there specific strategies in your back of your mind? I know you're reading up a lot on, you know, the life of pro baseball players, but you know, also the mentality of trying to get through to people. Are there specific strategies that you like to employ to, to kind of try to get through to people on the educational level as you're working with them? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think, I think that what a lot of athletes are presented with is they're, they're all surrounded by really bright minds and, and a lot of guys are doing the right things. Um, but let's use an example of somebody that maybe perhaps, uh, has to change organizations and then they're, they're now presented with a new philosophy and a new group of coaches that are bright and things like that. It, it's not either organization's fault or problem. It's the fact that the athlete now is put into a totally different set of circumstances where they yep. trusted a group and now they have to trust another group. So 
so I, I think at the end of the day, the only thing that's common in that scenario is the athlete and their own knowledge of their own body and what to do about it. So when you think of it that way, for, take a guy, you know, that, that plays for five or six organizations. It's like at the end of the day, he has to be able to have his own, you know, skill set on how to manage himself. So the way to get through to it is to provide context for the exercises that you're doing. At the end of the day, that's, that's the primary thing. If you're going to get somebody to do what are, what I would say are extremely boring exercises, wall slides, prone external rotations, prone horizontal abductions, you know, band work, like when you do it, you know, 300 days out of the year, it becomes very monotonous. Um, and we try, we start to kind of, we don't glaze over it if we're dialed in, but we start to perhaps just like get it done to check it off and move on to the good stuff, move on to the lift, move on to throwing, move on to our bullpen, whatever it may be. So I think when you can say, listen, this is why you're hurt, right? You're hurt. You're seeing me today because of the fact that you cannot do these, uh, simple exercises savagely well, every single rep, right? And I watch it, I watch a guy throw a bullpen, right? And I watch the, the nuance and the, the subtlety of, of what they're trying to get their body to do in an otherwise extremely complex, extremely fast motion and how they can criticize themselves on one little, one little change. I was, I was one frame behind on this or I was one, one shoelace over on this or whatever it may be. But yet then we just glaze over globally this stuff that generally keeps us healthy enough to be able to perform that bullpen. It just didn't make any sense to me. So like getting into like not just saying you have to do this because I said so and everybody's doing it, but instead say, listen, if you can get your cuff to fire at the very end of your layback position, that means your rotator cuff will pick up the stress when you start to make your move towards the plate. When you start to accelerate towards the plate, you have enough strength in the back of your shoulder to support your arm when you lay it back, right? If that doesn't pick up right away, as soon as you lay your arm back, then that stress that you're creating with your lower half and with your torso and hip rotation, that stress has to go somewhere, right? And the place that it's going on you is right on the inside of your elbow, right? That's why you have a partial tear in your UCL. That's why your forearm's always tight and you're spending all day rolling it out and getting massage work done. Because in this example, and again, this isn't exactly the case, but in this example, you're not taking enough stock or you haven't been informed enough to, to talk about why it's so important for you to do this otherwise boring exercise precisely like this. And then once they do it, this is the big, the big takeaway is once they do it and they're like, gosh, I feel stronger in that position. Like I feel more confident to like really let it go. Whereas before I was like, I thought I was letting it go, but I really wasn't because I didn't trust my arm back there because I knew it was going to hurt. Right. So once they can make that connection, we provide the context. We, we tell them exactly where in their delivery, this exercise is important. And then they see the result while they're actually executing their, their pitch or their throwing session. Then you have them forever. Right. But if you can't do that, if you can't say all of that and you just say, do these extra, these 10 exercises because it's part of a program that somebody put online, <laughs> it's not the program's fault. Right. It's the fact that we're not instructing it to that level of detail. And the higher the level of athlete, the more detail they demand of us and the more detail we should be able to provide to them. So that's. That's, I guess, how I would get buy-in and, and sort of create context for, you know, to answer your questions. So. That's outstanding stuff. And, you know, the other thing where I, 
I, I think you do a really, really good job. And, and this is, you know, I can speak from experiences mm. is there's a, there's a critical transition time where an athlete, you know, tapers down on their physical therapy visits and transitions back into the, the healthy world of training. And yes. I think that's a, that's a challenging dynamic for a lot of therapists because maybe they don't speak the language. Um, you know, and certainly we see we do- doctors that struggle with it as well as they, they don't necessarily know what goes on in the rehab side of things. And I think you do a really, really good job of, um, it's not so much that you you hit that critical threshold where it's like, all right, Joe, you're going back to the gym. Good luck. What, yes. what it usually is is it's a it's an email or a text message that you're sending me at the eight week post op mark and the ten week post op mark and the twelve week, and we're we're gradually reintegrating things. You're saying, hey, we did we did landmine presses with just the bar. We did a bottoms up carry at twelve kg today, and you're good to start integrating these. So it yeah. makes this transition so smooth. Um, yeah. and you never, you see so many people where everybody exists in one silo and everybody stays in their lane. And when, when you do that, the communication just never happens. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the person that suffers the most when everybody's ego is in the way is the athlete and they're at the athlete's career, right? Yeah. It's a huge emotional, mental, physical challenge to be hurt and be missing out on what you worked on your whole life. So our, our, if our job it requires us to send a text message or to make a phone call. Like, I mean, you and I can do this now in most cases with like literally not hardly talking. Right. But at I'm, the same time, I'm like just going to, our offices are next to each other. I'm just going to yell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It took us, it took us, you know, 10 years to get to that point, but yeah, you can't, you can't yell back cause it's a HIPAA violation, but I can that's yell. Right. I'm, I'm not, that's government. right. We'll, we'll do it that way then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it, it's a great point that you make and I'm not sure what I can add to what you just, what you just said, but I think it just gives, uh, some credence to the fact that like, number one, treat your athlete as an athlete a hundred percent of the time. So when they're, when you have a patient that comes in, that's injured, they got one part of their body that's hurt and that's it most of the time. So they can train up the rest of their body. We just have to have the competence and the confidence to not hurt the athlete, put them in positions to have success. They appreciate that kids with Tommy John, there are people that guys that come in with an elbow brace on when they're told, you know, the day you get that brace off, or maybe even the last week that that brace is on, you can get onto the safety bar and squat. Mm-hmm. They could not be more excited because even though they can't throw a baseball again for, you know, another 12 weeks or whatever it may be, they can start to squat. They can start to work on things that they haven't been able to work on. And they're, mm-hmm. they're pleasantly surprised when they're able to do that. So you don't just throw somebody under there just because, uh, you know, we said so, right. Or it's just, I learned this by spending time at CSP when I didn't know a lot about strength conditioning and, I learned to speak that language that you guys speak and then hanging out in the cage with Blake and with mm-hmm. Christian, like I learned to speak that language. So even though I didn't play the game, what it allows me to do is understand like what, what the language is, what people are struggling with, what people are working on. And, and for my sake, that's how I've been able to like integrate it in is by default. And you weren't, you weren't a baseball player either. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's just about like learning the life that these guys live and, and then, from from a professional standpoint, though, it's it's just saying like, listen, we we need to keep these guys on point because psychologically, mentally, all of those things like it is so important uh, that they feel useful and athletic, and that they're still working on their career even though they can't throw a baseball. Like that's that's so huge. So the, to your point, like uh, it's invaluable. It needs to happen. Mm-hmm. All right, we got you. Uh, you alluded to the lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Advice for a young Eric Schoenberg. We'll say we'll say just graduating PT school, Eric Schoenberg. Mm, yeah. Uh, so meet meet Shirley Sarman and, and Eric Cressy a little bit earlier. <laughs> but in addition to that, uh, I guess it's just uh, 
you know, don't, don't think that you know everything, uh, mm-hmm. cause, cause you don't. Nice. And now advice for any brand new physical therapy graduate right now. Yeah. Find a, find a great mentor. Uh, find somebody that that's doing what you want to be doing. Right. So yeah. if you say, I want to work in professional sports, go do it. Right. It's yeah. the worst thing that a person can say to you when you ask if you can offer them free labor and service to make their life easier, which by the way is the approach that you would take. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of high level achievers in our field that would say no to that. Don't, don't be a pain in the ass. Don't get in the way, but go and offer something. Not just, can I shadow and interrupt you every two seconds? It's, can I just be a wallflower? Can I be a fly on the wall? And can I offer you something that would make your life easier? I'm taking those guys all day. Awesome. Now, two books that any strength and conditioning or rehabilitation professional needs to read. Mm. Yeah. So movement system impairments by Shirley Sarman, uh, Number one, and gosh, I think how to win friends and influence people. That's good. Uh, you know, I just think that it's it's equal parts art and science. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like if you cannot connect with humans and understand what makes them tick, how to earn their trust, and how to get them to do what you want them to do, it doesn't matter how much technical knowledge you have. So I, I'd go with those two. That's a good combo right there. Uh, and diagnosis and treatment of movement impairment syndromes. The, I, I always joke that's one book that makes the trip back and forth between Massachusetts and, yeah. and Florida. I literally drive it back and forth every year just because you, you literally can reread it five times a year and you're always going to come up with a new way to view things in light of the patients or athletes that are in front of you. And just like every other very difficult book that reads, you know, not very easily in the first three chapters, like yeah. you got to, I think the mentoring part and being around somebody that can, that has a level of mastery of it where you can see it in practice, depending on the type of learner that you are. I think that's pretty big. Absolutely. And then what about, you know, I guarantee you there is a college or professional player who's waiting for Tommy John or had it this morning or, you know, is having it in the next couple of weeks. Um, what's some advice that you would give to a player that's about to have that elbow surgery? Um, gosh, that's a, that's an important question that you're asking me here. Um, Mm -hmm. so I would say, make sure that the team of people that are going to be, uh, supporting you on the rehab and, and, physical side of things is is sound and strong great doctor great strength coach and all of that but in addition to that i would say find something else that gives you a chance to push that competitive part of your body uh in mind i think it's number one you're going to be okay and you know we're going to help get you back uh that's number one your career is not over by any means find a great team uh and yeah, get a hobby, like find something that's going to get you jazzed up and get you excited. Learn how to play the, you know, the, maybe not the guitar cause your arm's bugging you, but learn something that you wanted to learn, like get passionate about something else and make yourself a more well-rounded person. Cause mm-hmm. if go, if all goes well, you're not going to have another summer off or another year off for a whole lot of time. So go travel, like spend time with your family and be a good person. Like those types of things are what I would suggest. I love it. All right. Yeah. So we, you, you crushed the lightning round. Um, folks can find you on Instagram and Twitter. It's CSP underscore physical therapy. Uh, I'm excited for the content. We just got those, those accounts locked down. So those are going to grow exponentially with all the good stuff you put out. Um, in terms of contact info, what's the best email address for folks to use for you? Yeah. So, um, right now the best email address is my last name, Schoenberg.eric at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can put that somewhere, I'm sure, yep. so people can find it. But it's S C H O E N B E R G dot Eric E R I C at gmail dot com. 
I love it. Thanks so much for taking the time, man. This was always, uh, it's always educational speaking with you, but it's also, to be honest, very motivating seeing the passion you have for helping athletes. And, um, it, it, you, that never wavers. That's literally all day, every day, Eric Schomer that I've come to know and love. So thanks for taking the time, man. I feel the same way. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.